hello, and welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Garland, and I'm joined by the illustrious Cameron Hager. So illustrious. All the way from Portland, Oregon, joining me uh, as always. Uh, Hey, before we dive into this one, a shameless promotion for another podcast we released about a month and a half ago. It is uh, facetiously named The Lower Room Discourse, and uh, yours truly (laughs) um, is one of the hosts on it with a couple of friends of mine. And we try to, uh, what we try to do is talk about the Bible in fun, engaging, like normal kind of ways. And so it's wherever you get your podcast, you can check that out, Lower Room Discourse. Um, and here's our topic for today, Cameron. Okay. Here's how I want to tee it up. I made friends with a guy here, an international student in our city here in the University of Arkansas, who uh, was from Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, as we sat down to, to just discuss, you know, just our lives and stories and, and how he got to the U of A and what he was studying and all that stuff. Um, of course, he, he was coming from a, uh, a Muslim background. And he, he said, uh, um, you know, there's no Christians in my country. And we be- he began to uh, ask what I do. And we, we talked for about two, two and a half hours. And he says, what do you do? And I said, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, actually. And he, and he kind of froze. And it had been the first time he acted like surprised. And we've been talking about all sorts of sports and life and and families and all this stuff. And he looked at me and he said, but, but you're married. He said, you're married. And I said, what? Like, I didn't catch why that was a big deal. And he said, I didn't think pastors could get married. And I went, oh, oh, you, you're thinking of a Catholic priest. And he said, yeah, that's a, that's a pastor, right? And what, what then happened, he, he was very interested. He wanted to know, okay, what is the difference between a, a Catholic and a, a, I guess there's other branches of this thing? It's all he was familiar with. Um, he wanted to know why I wasn't wearing, uh, you know, like the garments that a, like a pastor or priest would wear. He, he was shocked that I was sitting there with him at a coffee shop married with kids. Um, and what ended yeah. up happening is we spent about an hour uh, kind of just drawing the branches. I had actually drew like a tree out on a, on the notebook of kind of what Christianity looks like in its different forms and different denominations. And seeing somebody that had no familiarity with any of that um, try to wrap his brain around it. Now, what was really interesting was his response was, oh, we have that in Islam too. He said, we've got this branch and then this branch and this teaching and that teaching. And uh, in Saudi, we kind of follow this. And it was this really interesting, just really charitable conversation yeah, of learning awesome. for both of us. Uh, and so that tees up a question, though. As I'm drawing out all those branches, it's a question we get all the time. Okay, wh- what's going on here? Like, really, y- you say you're all Christians, but look, there's like a hundred different versions of this. And that's being nice. Um, yeah. Y'all can't agree. You can't get along. Um, come on. This has been silly. Then when you take any world history class, you realize that some of these different branches were bloodthirstily uh, violent towards other branches on the same thing that we've talked about in different episodes as the same thing called Christian. So um, if somebody's listening to this with very little background, or maybe they've come from a place in the South, for example, where there's a church at every corner and they all represent different things. How would you navigate sorting out just why are there so many denominations in this thing called Christianity? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And of course, we have to say it's so complicated. If you're, ta- you're talking about ancient history, you're talking about very densely packed recent history, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups, more than hundreds of groups of subgroups of Christians. 
so once again, we will only be able to to scratch in a quite thin way the surface here. Um, but it's a it's an important question. I think I think one that's easy for us. You know, you and I both come from Protestant non-denominational basically Bible churches, and um, it's easy to kind of not think about it and kind of myopically just think that my church, this one church, is all I really need to have any familiar familiarity with. It kind of becomes the sum, sum total of Christianity in a way that um, then makes it like difficult to know how to conceptualize these other groups and how do we interact with them and where where's their unity, where's their difference, and what do those differences mean? And so we just, I guess, want to start with, um, yeah, maybe, maybe just a an overarching conversation to locate us in this giant discussion uh, and maybe just a few, a few kind of tools to, I don't know, think more clearly about who we are in this gigantic picture. Um, Okay. So we've spent on this podcast, if you should go back and listen, if you miss these, we spent time talking about what Christians must believe, kind of how do we understand the basic core of Christianity? And then, you know, from there, the, the various things that we divide over and debate over and even just discuss over. Um, We've talked about now a couple of well-known sort of Christianity adjacent heretical movements in Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but now we want to talk about the diversity of belief in Christianity itself. So you could think of maybe all of these as kind of a, a little s- series together. Three disclaimers. I think I've already given one. Here's three more. First, I want to say this. It's easy to forget the fact that Jesus desperately wants unity for his church. Like, if you're familiar with Jesus's like kind of big dramatic final prayer uh, in the upper room, um, the night of his betrayal, he says this, this is just in John 17, starting in verse 20, he says, I don't, I do not ask for these only, but for those who, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you father are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me the glory that you've given me. I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus is saying part of his desire for the church is that there would be this deep unity that witnesses to even the unity within God himself between father and son and spirit. Like it's a big deal. And so there's, there's a sense in which all these different splinters splinterings of Christianity is just a giant tragedy. Um, obviously the result of sin. And yet here we are. I've heard a scholar one time who was an expert on Paul and he was asked, what do you think Paul would be you know, if he showed up in like the Western church, you know, showed up in our world today, what do you think he'd be, you know, happy about and surprised about with a church? And the scholar, you know, lifelong expert in Paul, spent his whole life studying Paul. He just said, he said, oh, that's an easy one. I think that Paul would be horrified at the lack of unity in the church. I think that he would see what we've done and largely sometimes with good motives, sometimes without, and be really, uh, be, be, it would really upset him. Um, so I think that's yeah. a great yeah, kind of first disclaimer. Okay, two more. Okay, so unity is valuable. Second, diversity is necessary uh, in, in this world because like, we need to keep these categories we've already talked about of important disagreement. We can talk generously and considerately of the various branches and denominations of Christianity um, without basically saying that those differences don't matter. You know, to be, to be um, sensitive and, you know, nuanced in how we talk about things does not necessitate that we say, well, it's, we're really all just saying the same thing. I don't know how many times we've said that on this podcast. 
but we dishonor ourselves, we dishonor the scripture, we dishonor our Christian brothers and sisters when we're disagreeing on something really important and we try to just like paper over it, dismiss it, cover it up. Let's accept that these differences are very, very real. Um, they matter. And I, I guess I'll speak for you. There are reasons we could both say that you and I are both at these evangelical, Protestant, non-denominational churches and not somewhere else. We've both you know, thought through these things and we're here because we think this is best, you know, our best shot at living out what we read in the New Testament. Um, and yet, and yet with that, we can still affirm our brotherhood and sisterhood with Christians of very different beliefs and convictions and dignify those differences um, as nonetheless very important because faithfulness to Jesus as we understand him in the scriptures is is more important than sort of a superficial agreement, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Third disclaimer. Third is just what I would say. Um, I would just say we need to acknowledge nominalism, which is Christianity in name only, or it's it's lukewarm belief or, or maybe pretending to believe. But we have to acknowledge that in every denomination and in every specific church, for that matter, within a given denomination, there's going to be nominal sort of believers and we might be predisposed to judge an entire group of Christians because you've personally seen a lot of nominal Christians in one. Say you, you, you have some, you know, have some Catholic friends that are sort of culturally Catholic. They don't really engage with their faith. Uh, they're uncommitted, maybe seemingly insincere. And you will be tempted to say, well, that's just Catholicism. That's just what all Catholics are like. I would just urge all of our listeners to resist that temptation to dismiss a whole tradition out of hand based on what you've seen in a few people. Every group, your church, whoever you are, your church has people who do not follow Jesus, who, that are showing up and hanging out and being a part of it. And it's not fair to judge the best of a tradition by its least committed people. I mean, speak for yourself. I mean, my church, not, about, not at our church. <laughs> not at our church down here. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I should, everyone yeah, yeah. but yours. <laughs> everyone but our church. <laughs> for our purposes, let's just take it for granted as we start yeah. this. We're not going to yeah. get into this as we go on, but let's take it for granted that every one of these movements we're going to talk about has people who are just there for cultural reasons, traditional reasons, don't really know Jesus, have not been saved by the gospel, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's people everywhere who don't represent the church's claims or Jesus himself very well. And we just have to say that's, we're going to find that everywhere. We acknowledge it out of the gate, but now we can talk about the movements themselves. So with that out of the way, I have a feeling it's about to get nerdy up in here with some his. I see history. I see the word schism oh. being said potentially. I, I I sure hope that the word schism can find its way into out of curiosity. So uh, right, here we go. First time. Uh, what, walk us through this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, for, so now I want to talk about the three what we might call branches of Christianity. The three sort of main groups that under which there's tons of other little groups, but the three main branches uh, that exist. To start, we have to talk about the birth of the church. Do you know when the church was born? Day of Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit does this incredible work, uh, empowers the people. It was the day the disciples were waiting for when Jesus would empower them to start this new thing. And the church was birthed and the rest of the book of Acts is the church's expansion across the Mediterranean world, uh, even into Africa. And so the church is going out there once we get out of the New Testament era, um, the church has continued to grow. It's growing uh, as a persecuted minority under the Roman Empire and beyond. Um, and we have to say in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine gave the Edict of Milan, 
which finally declared tolerance for Christianity in the Roman Empire. It formally ended Christian persecution. And there's so much we could say about that. But let's just oh, say that is. that was a, a monumental moment uh, of, of sort of social change for the church in the world. Um, but more than that, okay, Christianity is a persecuted minority. It becomes an informally tolerated and even formally embraced religion of the Roman Empire. And then we're in this period where um, the church is being built without the, the constraints of persecution. And there's kind of a core, we've talked about this before, but very briefly again, there's kind of a core of theological commitments that were birthed through um, the consideration of these early church leaders, even some councils that were convened of the leaders of, of the church uh, regionally. And basically in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, you have this core statement summary of what the Bible, what the New Testament teaches about the, like the, some of the most basic essential teachings of the church. And the church as it existed was un, united around these. They fought to say these are faithful summaries of what we believe, of what Christianity is. And there's no major group of Christianity now that denies what's in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. If you do, you've suddenly found yourself outside the bounds of Christianity. We should say then that um, flowing out of these things, each of the main branches that we're about to talk about, they all generally hold to the inspiration of the Bible, doctrine of the Trinity, the divine human person of Christ, salvation by grace, although with some major definition, <laughs> differences of interpretation there, uh, gospel proclamation, the return of Christ, and more that's, that's there in the creeds. Um, so there was unity in this early period until, until divisions happen. You ready to talk about schism? Garland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's time so, for some schism. So what we would say is that the church was just the church. You, you, you can't put these labels, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. It was just the church for the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you know your church history. Like, there were beautiful things. There were horrific things that the church was up to. But it was the church, just the church, until what's called the Great Schism of uh, 1054 AD over the inclusion of a new phrase into the Nicene Creed. Um, the Western Church has basically said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and this caused a whole bunch of division about adding this phrase in. And so there were a number of other sort of issues that were like building and tensions building, and this kind of became the straw that broke the camel's back. But as a result, um, the church was split into two groups at that point. And so this is where we start to see, okay, now there's definition to these different warring groups of Christians. If you're not familiar with this, you know, you move real quick through that. Let me, I think it's helpful for people to recognize, really it divides over, essentially over adding a phrase, a single phrase to the Nicene Creed mm -hmm. um, that involves the Holy Spirit and who sent the Holy Spirit, the Father or the Father and, and the, the Son. Son. But I think it's important to recognize, that may seem like a trivial thing, um, but to then say we have the authority or the church in Rome or the leader of the church in Rome has the authority to make such an adjustment to a creed that we decided hundreds of years ago, mm -hmm. that became the issue. Who has that kind of authority? And mm -hmm. so it's easy to go, well, that's so silly. What, one little phrase, and the son. Come on, that's the stupidest thing to break over. But when you're talking about the core agreed upon, hundreds of years of core church tradition, the essence to say, well, now I want to change that. This is the very thing we talked about in some of these other episodes, and 
the 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 church divided over this, and so they divided into two groups. Now you can take it from there. I just want to make it. I want to make it really explicit. Yeah, that's super like what, well said. What is going on here? Um, because I think oftentimes we can go, oh yeah, that schism, whatever. I don't understand. It was really a, a really big deal. Um, yeah. And it ultimately comes down to who has that kind of an authority. We get two groups out of it, which are? Well, first we'll say the Roman Catholic Church. And so very, very quickly, and this this is such a, this is also brief, I'm, forgive me. But so the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church is the body of professing Christians under the authority of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, also known as the Pope, and the institution that sort of undergirds this and flows out of it. So it's actually like, I'm convinced it's a more complex and diverse organization in practice than is often assumed and stated. Um, there are, you talk to 10 different Catholics and depending on what their parish is like, it's one of, you know, there's traditionalists, there's reform, you know, people trying to reform things and change things, trying to liberalize things and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, it, yeah, it's diverse and, and complicated, but following the divisions from the Orthodox and Protestants church, their doctrinal distinctives were really sharpened at the council of Trent, which really solidified their break with the Protestants a lot of the things that were being debated uh, during the, the Reformation era, they kind of doubled down on and said, no, we're, we're going to push, we're going to turn and push hard against what the reformers are, are advocating here. And so that was huge at the Council of Trent and then Vatican I and Vatican II. These councils, they've shaped modern Catholicism as we currently understand it. And since, it's important to note though, since Vatican II, the Catholic Church has softened its stance towards Protestants, um, and they call us estranged brothers. And I don't take offense to that, actually. I think that's a pretty good way for us to think about each other. Uh, I, I like that language, actually, estranged brothers in the faith um, between Protestants, Catholics, and, and Orthodox as well. In terms of doctrinal stuff, what do they believe? Some, some of the things that set them apart are obviously they have additional inspired biblical books that they believe are inspired called the Apocrypha. They believe in the infallibility of the Pope on doctrinal matters um, as the successor to Peter. Uh, they believe in a kind of merging of justification and sanctification that Protestants do not like at all. Um, they believe in a greater role for works in salvation than Protestants are comfortable with. Uh, seven sacraments that convey saving grace through their operation. Uh, invocation of the saints, prayers for people who've died, Purgatory, uh, Mary as kind of a supreme model for the church. So uh, if, if you're a little bit familiar with Catholicism, you've probably heard pieces of that. that I mean, we could go on for, for days, but I'll, I'll leave it there. So that's the Roman Catholic Church. Go ahead. And I think, I think it's important that, so you, what you just did is, you know, okay, we had a split at 1054 over who can change the creed. And one of those groups, and then what you just did is you gave us a thousand years of history explaining because you quickly started saying how they differed with the Protestants and talk about the Protestants. So if you're trying to keep up, you know, what we just did is we had our first split and our first schism. And what Cameron just did is take one of the branches. So imagine, you know, the trunk of a tree and then one of, you know, you know, like oak trees will sometimes kind of split right at the base. Now you just traced one of those like through the trunks of this tree up to, to a basically modern yeah. day, yeah, up to now. And so, yep. if that was hard to follow, or if you're going, okay, wait, 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 where'd the Protestants come in? Well, they're going to come in we'll later in when this branch yep. hits this other one, okay? Yep. Um, so, the Roman Catholic Church in 1054 
separated from the separated Eastern. from what we now know as this other trunk. And mm-hmm. what do you know about that one? So the Eastern Orthodox Church is the one that's least familiar to me, and I'm assuming it's going to be least familiar to most of our uh, listeners. It, it's it's not as common in the U.S., although there there are plenty of Orthodox churches. It's just not as big of a movement here. Um, so the Eastern Orthodox Church at the schism came into its own, and it's a group of churches largely in the Eastern Mediterranean, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and they're governed by these patriarchs. And I'm getting a lot of this from a, a summary that Bruce Demarest wrote. Um, I just didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so I'll credit, credit where credit's due. Um, but it's governed by these patriarchs who look to the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople as the first among equals is their language. Their teachings are defined uh, by the ancient fathers of the church, the seven ecumenical councils. We haven't mentioned those, but there were seven councils before the split that uh, is binding for Catholics and uh, Orthodox and Protestants do well to to, to honor them as well. Um, uh, seven ecumenical councils that help define many issues related to the Trinity, the divinity and humanity of Christ and so forth. So what do they believe? Well, they also have additional inspired books. They have the Apocrypha and a few other books over that. So they have the biggest Bible of the bunch, you could say, and that's obviously going to have consequences. Um, they believe very strongly in just the incomprehensibility of God's essence to the human mind. So there's this mystical, there's highly mystical nature to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, They believe in the authoritative role of tradition. They believe in the veneration of icons as portals into the divine, which is very interesting and different. They reject uh, Augustine's doctrine of original sin. Um, They uh, reject the supremacy of the Roman Pope, of course, Um, they emphasize the victory of Christ through his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that enables the faithful to experience deep union with God, like this union with God, this mystical union is so important that enables Christ-like transformation. And they actually point to um, uh, Jesus's transfiguration as like a a, a key model that we are all like kind of sort of striving for. Uh, So it's it's a very mystical... um, expression of Christianity in that regard. So even in your definition of that, you can see the great schism of 1054 at work. The Roman Pope and the, we might say, the infrastructure that supports it said, we can make the alteration of the creed. They were mm-hmm. adding, and the Son, sins the Holy Spirit. And the Eastern Orthodox Church said, wait a sec, wait a sec, we don't recognize that the Roman Pope has more authority to unilaterally make such a change. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have affirmed these, you said, ecumenical councils, <laughs> ecumenical creeds. That's, that's Nicaea, these creeds that have come before us. So we've agreed on these. These mm-hmm. are the things that we've agreed on, and we don't need to add to them. They, have, they are what we've agreed to, yeah. and any additions, therefore, they would see as something to be, uh, you know, maybe something dangerous or to watch out for. And so mm-hmm. even in the way that we, you know, you were describing some of their history and their traditions and some of the things they believe. Some of that is, of course, contra to what was going on in 1054. It's sort of this, this, this uh, divergence of these two groups really ends up uh, saying a lot about what they become. It's really kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Well, I, I assume then, so we've got two trunks of the tree, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more we could say. So a lot of this has to do with you know, where they are and cultural things and what part of the world they're in. And obviously there's po- a political intrigue. Pe- yeah. Always plays yeah, a role. All sorts yeah. of stuff on this. So when we talk about now Protestants, because that's, you know, we sit at here as Protestants, which I know may not be a, even a familiar term to many people. Um, where does that show up? So you said three great branches. 
Are yep. we tracking with the Eastern Orthodox branch or the Roman Catholic branch, or is this the third trunk? Well, this is a third trunk that splits from the first trunk we discussed from Roman Roman Catholicism. So the Protestant Reformation happened in the 16th century, uh, and you could think of three three main figures there. You probably know Martin Luther, but also John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, October 31st, 1517, most epic Halloween ever. Uh, Just <laughs> had the 500th anniversary of this. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's called, this is called kind of the formal beginning of the Protestant Reformation. There were rumblings before, um, but this is kind of the formal beginning. Uh, when if you know anything about it, you know, Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. And the first dispute uh, was over the practice of in, the selling of indulgences in the Catholic church, which I don't know, Garland, if you want to explain that for a second. Yeah, um, indulgences were basically, uh, it was a way to... <laughs> It'll sound so bad if I say it in a crass way, but almost to sell a person's, uh, to sell grace on behalf of someone else. And so, hey, we need, uh, my, my, my grandmother has died and I can essentially purchase grace for her to either spend less time in purgatory or to move closer toward her uh, ultimate glorification and justification. And it was widely, I mean, most, I think most historians say it's widely abused. The interesting fact is, the amazing St. Peter's uh, uh, Basilica in Rome that is a, a modern treasure cost, in the modern equivalent, billions of dollars to build and largely was built on the backs of these indulgences. <laughs> so just remember that when you walk through it. Yeah, a little, little gross. But yeah. So yeah, indulgences, Luther was fighting hard against this. He saw the injustice of this. He saw no scriptural foundation for this practice. But this this dispute then ballooned out into much more foundational issues, primarily over how does justification work? How is someone declared righteous by God? And, and Luther arguing for justification by faith alone. And then tied to that is scripture's authority over the Pope, over the tradition, over the magisterium of the church. So for him to say, no, what the ultimate authority is scripture. And what a lot of people don't know is that what Luther really wanted especially at first, was for the Catholic Church to reform, was for it to repent of some of these things. He wasn't trying to start an, a new, a third branch of Christianity. He actually was trying to get a what he viewed as a righteous reform within uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, but just as these things go, things snowballed and spiraled and people got more entrenched and there was more and more bitterness. And now we've ended up with a third trunk, uh, you could say, in, in the 1500s. Uh, that we call the the Reformed Church, or, the, or rather the Protestant Church. So what is it? Protestant Church, uh, as, as you might expect, if it's rejecting kind of the tight structure of, of the Pope and the tradition there, it's become this decentralized group of movements and denominations, tons of movements, tons of denominations flowing out of that Reformation. Um, it rejects the Pope's authority and unquestions, unquestioned deference to the tradition of the Catholic Church. Um, and, and, and it was thought to be to lead to the retrieval of the early church's faithfulness that had been corrupted. So they're not trying to say we're starting a brand new thing. We're trying to say we're getting back to um, a form of the church and the faith that had started to corrode at this point in history and by, um, by making this very radical move. So doctrinal distinctives, um, initially, 
you could probably say the five solas of the Reformation kind of were the theological bedrock. So authority of Scripture alone, um, the the authority um, uh, salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. These kind of became the bedrock issues. I'll speak less about these distinctives because our whole podcast uh, is from a Protestant perspective, um, and also because there's just a great diversity um, among the denominations that make up Protestantism. So it's harder to harder to boil down to a quick summary. So, you know, we haven't even, you know, you, you might have been coming into this going, okay, I want to hear about the Methodists down the road. You know, what's up with that? And we've been talking about Catholics and Orthodox and um, <laughs> we're we're getting we're gonna get there, but I think it's helpful to imagine this big, this big kind of oak tree spreading out and to see from where it's come. And by way of how you just even uh, we might say define some of the distinctives of the Protestant church, it is necessarily, I mean, one of the things that you said in there is um, they have rejected this sort of authoritative governance of the, the bishop in Rome. And by way of that, it is necessarily setting itself up to have splintering. Yeah. Because one of the things that you've done is you've unhooked from this, uh, this tradition and authority that can at least bring cohesion and once you do that, it's very, we might say it's very likely that different groups within Protestantism are going to have disagreements, and those are not going to have a place to adjudicate it or to, to settle the matter that everyone agrees on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so naturally now, tell us about denominations, because yeah. I guess you're going to be saying these are like branches on the Protestant trunk. Yes, yes, or what would be a smaller term? So we've got the trunk of Christianity Three big branches, and then what? Little branches that splinter off the like big little branches? limbs. Is there or a something? term? Yeah, Let's call them limbs. limbs. Little limbs yeah, off limbs. of the branch of Protestantism. Yes. So there are many denominations, and I'm just going to mention just briefly some of them, and maybe just a a short something about them. If you want to chime in on any of this that you think is interesting, Garland, feel free. Um, but first, I would mention um, the Anglican Communion and Lutheranism. So Anglicans and Lutherans. Um, and there's splinter groups within those as well. Um, but uh, the Anglican Communion the ch- started as the Church of England. Um, it is very Catholic feeling, as is Lutheranism. They both, their liturgy, their, their forms of worship, there is a closeness to the Catholic Mass. A lot of shared practices, a, a very liturgical Catholic feeling that you can feel. It's like, it's like this little, it's reform, it's Protestant, but there's but but in terms of its forms of worship, it's just you know it's just jumped off just the slightest bit. In like terms you might of, not know the difference if you walked into the two of those versus yeah. if you walked into some contemporary worship styled non denominational church or something Absolutely. like that. They would feel more close than the other one. Yeah, yep. for sure. Yeah, and those two are very different. But I just mentioned them together to say they're they're very high church, very liturgical. Typically, for um, your start, for your Anglican start, which of course rep- is in America is represented by Episcopalian, um, so that's the branch of Anglicanism in America. Uh, it also began with a question over uh, dispute over authority, and the the history of that is one of those intriguing things. One of those, if there is a time to be a fly on the wall of a historical moment, it is behind the scenes of everything going on with King Henry VIII and the yep. Vatican in Rome, all at the same time, I would love to be in those like boardrooms, conference yeah. rooms, or whatever they had to just know what the heck was going on in there. Um, but there's your, 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 your Lutheran and your Anglican is essentially beginning with, we don't agree with your authority, but we like a lot of the practice. We like yeah. a lot of the tradition. We don't agree with that authority. And 
Because of that, in lieu of that, we also see some doctrinal disagreements. But yeah. a street-level person walking in might not notice the difference yeah. between, a, say, a Lutheran church and a Catholic church, but there is a difference, yeah. um, and that's important to know. Yeah. Okay, what else? Lutheranism obviously flows from Martin Luther. Um, we should mention that as well. I would mention then uh, Presbyterianism, uh, which you could think of as largely flowing from John Calvin or John Knox or maybe both. Um, certain, certain streams of it uh, are rooted in the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you're familiar with that, others in the Heidelberg Catechism. So these are these kind of really powerful reformed confessions these, or, or catechisms, these doctrinal statements designed to help people vocalize their faith and live into their faith. I'm sure most of you have, have heard, at least heard of those things. So depending on the stream, they've got these, uh, these different documents that help ground their theology um, so yeah, and Presbyterianism is is maybe then kind of a middle ground between these more you know high church super liturgical things like the Anglicans, and then what many of us would be used to, which is a little bit more low church casual um, sort of worship expressions. Presbyterianism is kind of maybe a middle ground in there in terms of just what the what a worship gathering might feel like. Anything on them? Tim Keller, yeah, I famous think, yeah. famous Presbyterian. Keller's in that stream. Um, you know, in a similar kind of more reform stream, a lot of a lot of pastors, a lot of people listen to, um, kind of come from a more at least a we might say a reform background. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, what's interesting is as you talk about some of the ones that are about to follow, it's actually maybe easiest to see what makes them different in that you notice what they are rejecting or what they're arguing with. So, a Presbyterian and its founders end up having some debates with, uh, so Calvin and his disciples, Theodore Beza, end up having debates with the Wesleys. And that ends up creating your distinction between, say, a Presbyterian and a Methodist. And they have very important, like, divide over issues that they mm -hmm. divided over. And it's really helpful to see that, okay, on this, you know, this branch and this uh, limb, these two are talking here, and here's what they're talking about. And this, can, this is where this all gets really complicated. But then it makes, I think it helps us to see, though, why it all mattered. Uh, every one of these little limbs was a serious divide over kind yeah. of issue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Presbyterians then are oftentimes in distinction from uh, like a, like Methodist or Methodism. So what's their Yeah, so Methodism flavor? flows from John and Charles Wesley. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Wesleyanism. Um, some overlap. George Whitfield, uh, the revivalist uh, preacher. And the method is really important to Methodism. They had, they had sort of a, a set of practices, disciplines for pursuing and living holy lives that were kind of at the core of their movement. But it was, felt a little more low church, a little more decentralized, a little bit more organic than some of these other movements. Uh, high emphasis on just personal piety and those kinds of, those kinds of things. Didn't know if you want to say anything. <laughs> no. We'll just keep we'll just keep trucking. Um, Baptists, another group. These were this group. Baptists started as separatists from the Church of England. Did you know that? That's interesting. Uh, from the Anglicans, um, they have a relationship, uh, some similarities, and a little bit of DNA that trickles down from the radical reformers called the the Anabaptists. Um, they share the, the word Baptist in their name. Uh, Anabaptist just means baptizing again. They were the first first group that really went hard after the idea of believers' baptism and rebaptizing adult believers uh, after their infant baptism. Um, 
the doctrine of believer's baptism is crucial. That, that's, that's one of like the distinctive hallmarks that's in the name, why, why the denomination Baptist exists, uh, because of the belief in believer's baptism and often submersion in water, um, contra some of these other groups. And sadly um, enough, they were that group in, in Europe, especially, was one of the more persecuted groups. Yeah, um, of of any of these denominations, uh, and they were widely uh, persecuted. And some of the persecution that each of these groups experienced from each other led to the wanting to go find a new place to live, and uh, ultimately, yeah. what led to the founding of the place where you and I live. Um, so it's kind of all intertwines with even America uh, and its founding in here in these, you know, in, in, in this part of history. Okay, what else we got? Yeah. Well, I'll just rattle off a few more. We're running out of time, but you've got the evangelical free church denomination. You've got a, maybe a big bucket you could call the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, which a uh, high emphasis on the gifts of the spirit, um, high emphasis on, you know, kind of a dram- the dramatic power of the Holy Spirit. These things are all debated, of course, but within that large bucket, you've got things like the Assemblies of God denomination, the Church of God in Christ. Uh, even out here on the West Coast, uh, you've got Calvary Chapel, which is kind of um, charismatic light, maybe you might say, um, but a whole bunch of plenty more than that of groups that fall under that sort of bucket. And then maybe the last one we'll mention for now is non-denominational churches. You go, okay, well, what's that? <laughs> and you just go, it's exactly, it's just the final splintering where you're just like, we're just not tethered to any of these. In some ways, you could think of any individual non-denominational church as its own denomination. It's, it's we have our doctrinal statement, we have our beliefs and our practice, um, just like anyone else does, but we're, we've constructed it independently, of course, seeking to honor Jesus and honor the scriptures. Uh, but it's, it's sort of, you could think of each of these churches as a denomination unto themselves, um, which, yeah, it is what it is. I'm part some of one. Benefits. Yeah. Yeah. There's some benefits and some, and some cons to that. Yeah. Pros and cons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> funny enough, it, it's often the case. There's no, there's no, uh, reason this must be the case, but often you'll just find, uh, non-denominational churches are functionally Baptist churches uh, without <laughs> without the connection to yeah. the Baptist especially associations, in the South. Yeah. especially in the South. <laughs> especially in the South. So um, jokes can be made about that, but we'll, we'll leave it there. So um, maybe one last thing I'd say. So I just gave you a bunch of denominations and non-denominations. Um, within each of these, you will find countless splinter groups and subgroups and the complicated histories. And you will find then a spectrum of subgroups uh, along the line from what you might call progressive liberal on one side that that uh, over time tends to erode the authority of Scripture. And as soon as you erode the authority of Scripture, you tend to start drifting from historic orthodoxy, don't you? Because why should we believe in something as complicated as the Trinity if Scripture is not our authority? And, you know, and right. so... Very so. That's to say is that it's very easy for any of these individual churches or groups to become what we might call non-Christian because they begin to depart, even from within their tradition, from the the faith once for all given. Um, so progressive liberal on one side, you might put uh, evangelical in the middle, just kind of gospel proclaiming. Uh, at th- that title was kind of meant to serve as a contrast between liberal theology on one side and then fundamental fundamentalist theology on the other side. Uh, meant to be a little bit, um, how would you put it? Well, let's talk about fundamentalism for a second. The fundamentalist expression of any of these is sort of a, uh, you might call a very, very head in the sand, um, 
uh, hyper strict, hyper, you, you might almost say incurious uh, holding of their theology that um, is really not open to uh, refinement from uh, dialogue with other people. Yeah. I would say the easiest way to think through what, you know, you, if you've got a spectrum and on one end you might have, you know, what, what you're calling progressive liberal on one other end, you got fundamentalists in the middle. The way I would typically way to, uh, to, to think about that goes something like this. Um, how do we interact with a world around us that both disagrees with us or maybe doesn't even believe in Jesus? And yeah. on one end, you have some that would say, we're going to wholly embrace and we're going to take the best practices. In fact, we even like the way they view this or think about this or believe such. Well, that'd be moving you toward, you know, one side of the spectrum. But the other side goes, we have nothing to learn from out there. Bunker down, you know, uh, like let's, we, don't, we, we were doing our thing here. As long as we can maintain the kind of wall around us, then the evangelical tends to be one who wants to say we will, you know, we're living with Jesus as king and we're going to honor him, but we really want to engage culture around us. We want to see life change. We want to see our city change. You want to see yeah. those things. And I think it might be a good idea to come back and have an entire episode on what is an evangelical. What yeah, is that word be being? Great. It's kind of fallen on hard times now. I think often now in America, yes, evangelical, as it was used, is now in the modern kind of pop culture means fundamentalist. Yes, um, yes. And that really actually changed in about the last about the last seven years. Yeah, um, we need new terms, and so, I think. Yeah, need new terms, or we just have to redefine them yeah. uh, better. Yeah. So just if you are an evangelical listening to this in the South and you you thought, well, that, that's a great term. I've been using that for 20 years. You just need to recognize in the broader culture outside of evangelicalism, of it has moved to what, you know, what somebody might have used to call a fundamentalist view. Yeah. Uh, so just, just be aware of that, and we might come back and define it in another episode. So an interesting, we, we're going to wrap up here in just a sec, but an interesting thing to note here is because Protestantism is so diverse, because of the spectrum, there's so many groups and there's the spectrum amongst each of the groups, it could be that you have more in common theologically uh, with a Catholic than you do many Protestant <laughs> denominations in terms of core commitment to orthodoxy. Um, so just, is this Protestant, Orthodox, you know, Eastern Orthodox, I use that technically, or uh, Catholic is not is not your best sort of uh, starting point. Yeah. Starting point for understanding: Am I dealing with someone who who's trying to come under the authority of Scripture at least, trying to and um, transmit the once for all faith? Uh, so it's just really. I suppose all of this is to say it's so complicated. It's so complicated. And maybe mm -hmm. to conclude, we'd say a couple of things probably already said some of these in this episode, but first let's pursue the good kind of unity. Jesus wants unity from us. And so can we offer respect? Um, can we offer respect to believers of different Protestant denominations and even from the different big branches? Can we celebrate where we agree? Can we celebrate where we are aligned in basic Orthodox Christianity as defined in the creeds? And can, where, can we defend where we disagree? And I hope you'll, we'll all in, become increasingly capable of defending where we disagree and saying like, this is what I believe and it really matters and here's why, but doing that with a, a spirit of kindness and charity towards 
people who hold different views. So that's a good kind of unity. There's a bad kind of unity, though. And the bad kind of unity is papering over these differences as though they don't matter, just kind of collapsing it all into a, oh, you know, we're just all Christians. Why would we even care about this stuff? Well, Jesus wants us to love him with all of our minds. He wants us to submit to every page of scripture. He wants us to increasingly know him more and more and more. And that means making choices about these things that have, yes, started wars, yes, divided churches, yes, gotten Christians persecuted and killed because they really do matter. Um, and so we don't want to be the ones that are doing the persecuting and killing, of course. Right. Right. But, but, but we want to, the kind of unity we're pursuing is not the kind that says, ah, who cares about all this stuff? Um, that, that would be to, to shirk our responsibility as disciples, I mm-hmm. think. Anything on that? Yeah, and, and we've said it before. It's just not loving. It, it ultimately, it's just it's not loving to say none of these things matter. And we, we, we would not say that any other place in, in life. Like, differences matter, and we all know that. Uh, we recognize that. And so um, let's just be appreciative of that. Maybe the last thing I would say, all of that said, our distinctions are important. You know, for everyone who is a genuine, who has been saved by the grace of God amongst Protestants, amongst the Catholic, and amongst the Orthodox, for everyone who is a genuine and true follower, believer in Jesus, saved by his grace, these distinctions are very important, but they're temporary. And one day we will all, like all of these differences will dissolve because we'll be standing in the complete truth before Jesus together. We will be united. We will actually be united one day as he longs for. Uh, And so until then, may we follow our convictions. May we divide where we need to but may we extend charity and compassion for our distant siblings, knowing that that day's coming. Like we will spend eternity with our brothers and sisters across these divides and we can prepare for like the spirit of that now. Um, so may we pray for them uh, where we're wrong. May we pray for correction where they're wrong. May we pray for their correction. But and more than anything, may we long for the day when we are just all worshiping King Jesus together as one body as he's always intended. I think that's the biggest takeaway. Well, and I think that's beautifully said, and I could say nothing more profound than that. <laughs> um, so this obviously gets us, this gets us like we move from the one-yard line to like the six-yard line. We haven't <laughs> even got a first down yet. Um, and that just episode. shows you, yeah, how complex these issues are. Um, and at every turn, um, there is something, you know, a really important thing that people really wrestled over that has led us to where we are now. But yeah, that unity that, that Jesus longs for, we pray for that day and know that it's coming soon. And as always, thanks for joining us on Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of Curiosity. If you found it helpful, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with a friend. To suggest a topic, reach out to us on Instagram at OO Curiosity. We'll see you next time.